The Revolt of 2020 by Patrick Johnston. Copyright 2011 by Dr. Patrick Johnston. Read by Daniel Meyer. By kind permission of the author, this reading of The Revolt of 2020 is available for free distribution. Stay tuned at the end of this reading for more information and links to additional resources. Chapter 22. Baltimore, Maryland. Congratulations for having such a heroic son, Mrs. Starr, said the shorter of the two federal agents as they gently shook the woman's wrinkled arthritic hand. You must be proud. She smiled, showing sparse, crooked teeth, and thanked him for the compliment. I hear he's supposed to be out of ICU this evening, said Charlie's mother. Hopefully, said Andy, who sat beside Charlie's mother. We've answered hundreds of questions. I was with him on the plane. Will you get to the point? The president would like to meet with Charlie once he's out of ICU. Oh, said Andy, wide-eyed. Andy glanced at Charlie's mother, who appeared confused by the idea. Who'd have thunk it, she said. Do you think Charlie would like that? The shorter agent said, smiling condescendingly, as if he'd just handed a poor family a hundred-dollar bill out of the U.S. Treasury. Yes, answered Andy with an enthusiastic grin. Absolutely. Before we can do this, we need to be aware of Charlie's opinions about the president's terrorist fighting measures. He's out of it right now on the morphine, and so we can't really speak to him directly. But this is very important to the president, and we need to move quickly now that the public is captivated by his heroism. So we would like to know if he has vocalized his political views to you. Mrs. Starr opened her mouth to voice her son's criticism of the president's measures, but Andy stopped her. Charlie's her biggest fan. Really? The agents appeared pleased with Andy's enthusiasm. Absolutely. He'd love to meet with her. You have no idea. Mrs. Starr caught on to Andy's subterfuge and added, Can I be there, too? Washington, D.C. The president and her chief of staff were in the back seat of a limousine en route to George Washington Hospital to see the hero of Flight 710. The president was angry at the update Dina had just given her. I thought we shut this article down. Josh Davis is doing this all on his own, Madam President. When he was rejected by Time and Newsweek and every other editor who saw it, he published it on his own. The internet wave is carrying this traitor's hate speech all over the world. Are you telling me we can't shut this down, said the president? No, once it got on the web, it spread like wildfire by blog and email. Do you want to read it? Halucci asked, extending a highlighted copy of the article to the president. You're going to be asked about it by the press. The president did not take it, but shook her head and turned her gaze out the limo's tinted windows. Just tell me about it. Okay. She realized that the president was predictably going to explode in a rage through the course of their conversation. Just get it over with, she thought. He knows about the FBI's investigation of the Columbus bombing. The president acted as if she had just been bitten by a snake. She jolted, not believing her ears. What? How can that be? If Congress can't get that info, how can he? He cites anonymous sources close to the president. The president frowned, and then her gaze suddenly darted from the window to Dina. Danny Connor. Dina Halucci frowned back. I don't know. The president cursed her own naivete as Halucci continued. The article attempts to prove that you know that the Columbus bombing was an accident, yet you're blaming political dissidents to push your social agenda. Davis spends pages and pages criticizing your executive orders. Surprise, surprise, said the president sarcastically. Then he goes into the terrorist attacks. Let me guess, he blames me for them. He indicts you for calling the very nations that are sponsors of terrorism around the world our allies in the war on terrorism. He also indicts the undocumented immigrant policy of the State Department and your administration for the terrorists being here in the first place. Oh, Halucci said, putting her finger on a highlighted section of a page. Listen to this. He indicts the federal government for racism because of our non-discriminatory security policies. What? He admittedly does a good job of showing that virtually all hijackings and terrorist activities have been perpetrated by militant Muslim men with connections to nations that sponsor terrorism and that it's racist not to acknowledge that fact. 
He said that in order to preserve our American liberties, the oppressive strip searches and extra security measures need to be limited to this subset of the American population. And he calls us racists? Ha! said Brighton. He claims that the sure sign of victory over terrorism will be, she paused to search for the words on the page, and then she read, the elimination of the oppressive and intrusive security measures that stand no chance of stopping terrorism but serve only to embarrass and humiliate law-abiding American citizens and increase the power of the central government. Remove security measures? He says, victory cannot be experienced without reaffirming the tradition by which the government of the United States treats citizens as its masters rather than its potential enemies. Is he crazy, said Brighton? Did you know that if someone is randomly picked to be searched at airport security terminals, they can just turn around and leave? What? Does he say that? He's got a picture there of the sign in front of the security terminal at the airport where the terrorists got on board, and the sign plainly says that if you're picked to be searched, then you can leave. So? Why do we allow that, Halucci wondered. If a terrorist with dynamite strapped to his chest is picked to be searched, the terrorist could just leave and come back to try again the next day. The president did not answer her chief of staff's question. I suppose he'd just have us strip search all the Arabs and blacks and let all the Caucasians go right on board with all the weapons they can carry. He talks about Charlie Starr, too. That's the hero of Unite America Airlines Flight 710 we're going to see now, right? Yes. Did you know that Charlie Starr could have been indicted for fighting the terrorists on Flight 710? What? How? I'll just read this paragraph to you. Bowing to pressure from the left in the 1960s, the U.S. government failed to force Castro's Cuba to return hijackers and instead defined security as disarming passengers. This succeeded in disarming everyone but the hijackers. By 1969, Cuba's immunity encouraged Arab governments to get into the hijacking business. The U.S. government's response to failed policy was not to reverse it and attack governments involved in terrorism and to empower passengers to defend themselves. Rather, the government doubled down on its failing approach. The official instructions to Charlie Starr and the other passengers on Flight 710 read like an invitation to hijackers. Comply with your captor's directions. Relax. Breathe deeply. If told to maintain a particular body position, talk yourself into relaxing in that position. You may have to stay that way for a long time. Halucci took a deep breath and tried to fight off the urge she had to agree with the right-wing fanatic. The pilots reportedly instructed everybody to submit to the terrorists, but thankfully Charlie Starr disobeyed. Remember, you must comply with all federal regulations, posted signs and placards, and crew member instructions. Indeed, U.S. security policy virtually guaranteed the success of the hijackings. It was Charlie Starr's audacious violation of idiotic federal regulations that saved thousands of American lives, she read. The president was stumped. How could she rebut that? Obfuscate, she thought to herself. Halucci flipped a page. He sets James Knight and Henry Adams up as other examples of Americans who defy tyranny in deference to a higher law. He argues that people shouldn't turn in their guns on the deadline. Does he? Brighton seethed as Halucci turned to another page. Skip it, she said, swatting Halucci's hand. I get it. The president hit a button on the wall and spoke to the driver. How much longer? Five and a quarter miles, Madam President. The president let go of the button inside. Anything else I absolutely need to know about the article? Let me read his conclusion. I think this is where he crosses the line into treason. I'm all ears, said the president. The Constitution is a contract between the states and the central government, and it is conditional. If one party violates the contract, the offended party may be justly relieved of obligation to its terms, all the more so when the violations persist and escalate. Human governments have limits, and the Creator defines those limits. In the Declaration of Independence, our forefathers cited King George's violation of those limits to justify their secession from Great Britain. Should peaceful measures fail to constrain our government to heaven's rules and the Constitution's limitations, God may guide upright citizens to forcefully repel this domestic enemy just as they would be inclined to repel a foreign invading army. We are at the dreaded day when American heroes may in good conscience forcefully defend themselves against the agents and armed forces of the federal government. 
He then quotes from Benjamin Franklin, those who give up a little freedom for a little safety deserve neither. I thought Josh Davis was a moderate. When did this fellow become a right-wing nutcase? He drank the Kool-Aid, Madam President. Anyway, the Bureau has hundreds of computer geeks and hacks trying to anonymously shut down every website that has the audacity to publish this treason. Weaver's been threatening the networks. I'm sure they're tempted. We'll do the best we can to bury it. Hopefully we'll prevent it from gaining any traction in the next week, the most critical period. By then our mudslinging campaign will ruin the name of Josh Davis. The limousine pulled under the overhang of the side entrance of George Washington University Medical Center. A Secret Service agent stepped out of the passenger side of the front seat, walked around, and opened the rear door. The president reached for his hand and stepped out gracefully. Dina Halucci stepped out of the other side of the limo and followed the president through the glass foyer into the hospital. Another Secret Service agent met her at the rear entrance to the ICU. Right this way, Madam President. A CNN employee greeted the president at the nurse's station and confidently shook her hand, but before the magazine model turned to journalist could introduce herself, the president said, I'm speaking to the house in less than an hour. Let's rush this. Very well. Our hero's name is Charlie. He's medically stable. The patient's mother, Mrs. Starr, is with him. There will also be the cousin and the best friend of the patient, Andy. This was supposed to be the immediate family only, Brighton interrupted the gorgeous reporter, slightly irritated that CNN would hire someone for their looks and not their intelligence. Andy Nelson was with Charlie on the plane. He's hero number two, and two heroes are better than one. Oh, okay. Maybe the reporter was smarter than she appeared after all. Charlie has rehearsed his lines. You just smile and introduce yourself, then tell him you appreciate his bravery and sacrifice for the good of his nation. Tell him you're doing everything you can to make America safe again from hate and tyranny. He'll respond with his prepared comments. Then you can wish him well, shake his hand again, and then excuse yourself. To keep it from appearing staged, I'll introduce the public to the scene. Very well. She followed the newscaster to the door that led to the room, wondering if her hips were the creation of a plastic surgeon. Go on in there, Madam President, and show off those pearly whites. There will be a camera at the door and one in the left corner of the room. Try not to look at it. First time's practice. Hello. Margaret Brighton entered the room with a sincere look on her thin face. She introduced herself to the hero of Flight 710. Charlie, how are you feeling? she asked warmly. Charlie had a chest tube that drained into a contraption on the right side of the bed. He was receiving oxygen via nasal cannula and was hooked up to a heart monitor. The heart monitor wasn't necessary, but the senior CNN cameraman thought it would look good as a backdrop for the propaganda piece. Better, Charlie smiled nervously and glanced at Andy, who stood against the wall across the room. She introduced herself to the family and then stood next to Charlie's bed. Charlie, I've come to tell you that your country appreciates you for your bravery and your sacrifice for the good of the nation. You're a true American hero. I am proud of you. Thank you, Madam President. I am doing everything in my power to stop the hatred that produces such terrorism in America. Hopefully Congress will follow our lead and crack down on the illicit sale and possession of harmful arms in America. Charlie cleared his throat. This is practice, right? Everybody laughed and the President smiled and nodded. Thankfully. Well, I think you're doing a very brave thing, Madam President, standing against the religious totalitarians. Those words made Brighton smile more genuinely. At home and abroad. Charlie cleared his throat and tried to remember his lines. I hope Congress does the sensible thing and helps you crack down on the hate and intolerance and that irresponsible gun owners are brought to justice. Charlie saw Andy out of the corner of his eye and noticed that he was trying to hold back a belly laugh. Thanks, Charlie. The president turned and said to the cameraman, Okay, let's do it live. The CNN newscaster reminded Charlie, Don't forget to mention that you're a gun owner and you're going to turn yours in by the deadline because you feel it's your patriotic duty. You can do it, Charlie, Andy encouraged him. You're famous, man, famous, an American hero. Yeah, right, Charlie grumbled, his mouth feeling very dry at that moment. Come on, man, Andy tried to cheer him up. You brushed your teeth this morning. Given that you only do that once a year, you can't back out now. Very funny. The CNN news correspondent announced, Ten seconds, everybody. Everybody take a deep breath. Andrea stepped outside at the cameraman's urging, and the light from the camera outside the room shined on her as she smiled and held the microphone close to her lips. The president waited at the door for her cue. 
This is Andrea Feltz, CNN correspondent to the White House. I'm at the George Washington Medical Center with Charlie Starr, the young man who was instrumental in foiling the terrorist attack on United America Airlines Flight 710. The president has just arrived and is prepared to recognize Charlie Starr for his bravery and sacrifice. Now let's go to the president. Mr. Starr, it's an honor to finally meet you, she said warmly as she stretched a hand over his bed. He shook her hand nervously and cleared his throat. And you are Andy Nelson? The president walked over and shook Andy's hand. You were with him on the plane, weren't you? You helped stop the terrorists? He smiled and nodded. How do you feel, Charlie? Better. Charlie, I've come to tell you that we appreciate you for your bravery and your sacrifice. You're a true American hero, a good example of patriotism that everyone in America should follow. Thank you, Madam President. I am doing everything in my power to stop the hatred that produces such terrorism in America. Hopefully Congress will follow our lead and crack down on the illicit sale and possession of harmful arms in America. My administration... I hope not, Charlie interrupted the president. Everyone in the room stopped breathing for a moment, and the president stared at Charlie in confusion, hoping that she had misunderstood him. I hope they don't take guns away from good people. Thomas Jefferson said, Laws that forbid the carrying of arms disarm only those that are neither inclined nor determined to commit crimes. Jefferson also said the strongest reason for the people to retain the right to keep and bear arms is, as a last resort, to protect themselves against tyranny and government. Excuse me? The president glanced nervously at the cameraman. He shrugged his shoulders and mouthed, It's live. I'd encourage everybody listening to go out and buy more guns. More guns? Brighton's face reddened as her gaze shifted from Charlie to Andy. Yeah, especially those semi-automatic, large-caliber, armor-piercing guns. We need to be able to stop the tanks and helicopters that you or future presidents might use against civilians. Andy was entertained, but he was no longer laughing. He was coming to comprehend the gravity of this live news program between his best friend and the most powerful leader in the world. He motioned toward Andy. My good buddy Andy here is on his way to a gun show to buy me as many guns as I can afford with the money y'all gave me for doing this live interview. Right, buddy? Andy grinned from ear to ear and gave Charlie the thumbs up. Without papers, if I can. That's right. We try to get our assault rifles without papers, so that when you start confiscating guns, you won't know we have them. The president saw that she had been tricked while I'm on my way to Congress to discuss this very matter with them. She began to backpedal away from the hospital bed. I'll do my best to pass legislation to make America safe again. Have they asked you about Josh Davis's article? Charlie pulled a dozen eight and a half by eleven sheets of paper out from under the sheet that covered him. Is it true that pro-lifers weren't responsible for the bombing that killed President Fitzgerald and you just blamed innocent people to justify persecuting them? The president was stumped. She froze. She didn't know what to do. She swallowed hard and stuttered, Well, uh, well, I've got a meeting in Congress right now, so I need to leave. She glanced at Andrea Feltz, who was just getting off the phone with her producer. Andrea handed the phone to one of her fidgety aides and stepped into the room and gave the cameraman the sign of her thumb across her throat. Thanks, Charlie. The president blurted out once the cameraman cued her to do so. She waved and faked a smile as she left. She glanced over at Charlie's mother, went to her, and took her hand, hoping that the following moment's sentiment would silence the venomous rhetoric of the right-wing extremist lying in the hospital bed beside her. It was a final attempt to save face in one of the most embarrassing circumstances of her life. Your son's a brave man. He's right, too, Mrs. Starr said through her dentally challenged withered mandibles. Come on, Andy, let's go buy us some guns. The president turned to leave and would have spit in Andrea's eye if the camera wasn't still on her. Austin, Texas. Woohoo! Jared cheered, raising his arms into the air after watching the president's meeting with Charlie Starr on the television that was affixed to the wall over their heads. He, Elijah, Natalie, and some friends from church were enjoying a sampler platter at a corner booth at an Applebee's restaurant. Unbelievable. Elijah glanced at Natalie, who looked equally shocked. What's this about Josh Davis? I've heard that name before. Natalie responded, didn't he break the story about China's nonviolent revolution into a democratic republic? Ah, Elijah snapped his fingers. You ever heard about this article on the net that fellow was talking about? 
Natalie shook her head back and forth. Hand me your cell phone and I'll search it online. At that moment, Elijah Slate was one of millions of Americans who began hunting for Josh Davis's article on the World Wide Web. Thank you for listening to this reading from The Revolt of 2020. This chapter was read by Daniel Meyer and engineered by Park Leacock. The Revolt of 2020 and its sequels, The American Tyranny of 2020 and The Uncivil War of 2020, are available for purchase at docjohnstonnovels.com. That's docjohnstonnovels.com. O Lord, turn us back to you. Forgive our sins and heal our land.